Isaiah chapter 45 today. We're going to look at it in its entirety uh, in a message that I've entitled, Look to Me and Be Saved. And so with that, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we just are so grateful, Father, for your love and your mercy. We invite, Lord, the edification of your word, the examination of our hearts. We ask, God, that you would open our understanding, that we would comprehend your word. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, goad our, uh, kind of our, our, our will, uh, that we might respond to your word, God, that you would prod us and poke us and, and help us, Lord, to be active in serving you and being well-pleasing to you and and uh, God, just being faithful to that which you've called us to, Lord, that we lay hold of that for which you've laid hold of us. So we give this time to you, God. We pray that you be glorified and magnified in it. We'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Everybody say it. Amen. Have a seat, would you? Guys, if you were to ask me to sum up Isaiah chapter 45 in a single sentence, I would probably point you to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 that says this, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible... To God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because it's here in Isaiah chapter 45 that he declares that God hides himself, yet he does not speak in secret. He is invisible to you and me, but yet at the same time he speaks openly. You remember we read in Romans chapter 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The idea there is that design demands a designer. Be it our car, be it our clothes, be it our computer, be it this pulpit, this place, we concede design demands a designer. Now, you may not see the designer, but what's been created demands a designer by its very design. And so, too, with everything in this world, the trees, the animal life, aquatic life, insect life, human life, the sun, the moon, the stars, their glorious design demands a divine designer. It's one of the ways that God makes himself known to man. The design of creation, it points you to the Creator. Another way that God reveals Himself is through His Word. And He proves that you can trust His Word by speaking of things that have yet to take place so that when they come to pass, you will know that God has spoken it. We call it prophecy. And we're in the midst right now of, of an incredible prophecy in our present passage in the book of Isaiah. God is calling out the name of a pagan king who will set his people free to rebuild and reestablish and re-inhabit Jerusalem. Now, they're not even going to go into captivity for over another hundred years from this point, but he's telling them that Babylon will carry them away, and then a Persian king by the name of Cyrus will conquer Babylon, hear of this passage that prophesies of him and set the captives free to return to the land. And he speaks of all of this in tremendous detail. Again, why does God share all this information in advance? It's so that you and me, we can know that we can trust his word. That God is not a man, that he should lie. 
And if he speaks it, you can trust it. And ladies and gentlemen, this is important because God has made to you and me in his word many precious promises, and not the least of which is everlasting life by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we want to turn our attention to the passage at hand. We read in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel." Well, believe me when I tell you, family, that there are all kinds of things that we could take the time and develop and discuss in this short section of Scripture. It's one of the, as a pastor, it's one of the prayerful, and I might even go out on a limb and say painstaking processes that we go through to try and determine what parts of a passage that you're going to develop in the time that you have allotted to teach the Word of God. But as I kind of said in passing last week, hey, listen, in part my mission is to whet your appetite, yeah, so that you'll go home, you'll study it a bit further, and you know, I can't do all the work for you. If I say something, it kind of sets you on a, where was he going with that? What does he mean by that? Where does that finish in all? You, then you go home, you look it up, you learn of it, and you grow, yes? But when you combine the last couple verses of chapter 44, along with what we just read here in chapter 45, it becomes quite staggering if you allow the time to sort of sit and soak it in. God says He's going to take hold of this pagan Persian king. and he Now, how many of you realize the Bible says that the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And like rivers of water, he directs it however he wishes. But God says he's going to take hold of this Persian pagan king, and he calls him his shepherd and his anointed. And the idea is that God is appointing him, he is empowering him to serve and accomplish his purposes on the earth and fulfill his promises to his people, even though, and this is kind of the mind blow, as we'll see in verse 4, that he, that is Cyrus, did not, does not, know, has not known him. And God gives all this detail of what's going to happen before it happens so that Cyrus, and anyone else for that matter, even you and me right here, right now today, will be able, unable, pardon me, to deny that the God of heaven has ordered it so. I mean, imagine, there you are, 1816, thereabouts, 1815, 1816, here in America, and someone says there will come a man, Donald Trump by name. You know, people won't like how he speaks. They won't appreciate the way he tweets, you know. But he'll shake up the establishment nonetheless. 
And he goes on, and world leaders will respect him, but those of many of his own nation will reject him. And, and he just spills out all this detail about this man and what the platform he's going to give him on the world stage and what he's going to accomplish through him. It's that kind of thing we're seeing here, only in much more detail, greater insight from the divine perspective. And honestly, we have to say that in this, with regard to this, what we're seeing here. There's not much of a scriptural precedence. I mean, we might say that God is really operating outside the box in this one. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, typically, when God wanted to do a work of deliverance for his people, he would raise up a deliverer from among his people. You know, you might say that when God delivered his people from Egypt, he raised up Moses. Many of the times, in the, in, you know, where there was a Goliath, there was a David. Where there were Midianites, there was Gideonite, except not the ite. Just wanted to say it because it rolled out of my lips, kind of. Midian and Gideon, you understand what I'm saying. But not here. Not with this one. And truth be told, family, there is so much that we really don't understand about how God orchestrates and facilitates the events of human history. What we do know is that ultimately, they will all serve His glory. But God says here, I have held your right hand. You know, the right hand symbolizing power and authority. And God essentially is saying, you, Cyrus, didn't realize it at the time, but the reason you were so successful in every military campaign upon which you embarked is because I went before you. I gave the victory to you. And I believe this to be true for you and me and each of our lives as well. You know, there you are. You're out living your life. You're just doing your best. And every now and then, it seems like the stars line up and you get the W. You know what I'm saying? Something works out. And, and then you kind of go on to the next one. But when you stop, years go by and you begin to kind of reflect and look back. You just see the hand of God in the whole thing. You know, he was going before us. He was granting favor to us. You got that promotion or that right person just walked into your life. Or maybe you were really ill and the right specialist entered the equation and your life was spared. Maybe your body was repaired. And you just, you look back and you see that God was, was there for you. He was holding your hand through it all. He was putting you in the right place at the right time with the right people. And it's simply impossible to deny God says, Cyrus, the reason you've been able to subdue nations is because I've raised you up. I've gone before you. I've given to you great success. Now, according to one ancient Greek historian, Cyrus subdued the Syrians, Assyrians, Arabians, the Cappadocians, the Phrygians, the Lydians, the Carians, Phoenicians, Babylonians, the Bactrians, Indians, Cilicians, the Satians, the Paphlagonians, the, how do you say, Mariandines, and, and, and many other nations. He had dominion over the Asiatics, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Egyptians. You get the idea. He subdued nations. And he says here, God says that the armor of kings would be weak 
that he would open for him the double doors, the gates would not be shut. And this is exactly how Cyrus defeated Babylon. It, it's interesting, guys, the detail. Now, Babylon, according to a different Greek historian, um, and I just don't want to pronounce these guys' names for him, just to be honest, had, had walls over 300 feet high, over 80 feet thick. They used to do chariot races on the tops of the walls of ancient Babylon. You could put six chariots side by side, and they would race them. I mean, beyond that, you know, impenetrable force. There was a moat that surrounded it. There were inner gates, or inner walls, pardon me, after that, and gates and such. Food for years in the granaries. In fact, it was thought so impossible to invade that when the Medo-Persian Empire, or armies, I guess I should say, began to encamp against it, Belshazzar, now he was the king of Babylon at the time. Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was his grandfather, I, I believe, and he thought that he would defy them by throwing a giant party while they were out there doing their thing. He threw a giant party inside for a thousand of his lords. Now, you can read of all of this, this entire event, in Daniel chapter 5. In fact, Belshazzar commanded that they go and get all the treasures, the cups and such, from the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had sacked and taken. He said, hey, go get the treasures of, uh, of the temple from Jerusalem, uh, and we're going to use them as the vessels from which we drink and that we party and all of these things. And as you know, that's when the hand of a man appeared and began to write on the wall. I mean, you know, you've heard the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall. And this is where this comes from. And this hand begins to inscribe many, many, M-E-N-E, mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say that Belshazzar's armor was loosed when he saw that. And his knees, the Bible began, says, began to smite. They were smote together. Long story short, he called for Daniel. Now, Daniel was an old man at the time. It served his grandfather. Uh, he asked him to come and interpret the writing on the wall for him. And essentially, I mean, you guys remember the interpretation. You know, you've been weighed in the balance. You, you know, your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. But Daniel essentially just told him, look, you're going to die tonight. And the way that Cyrus conquered the city was he actually diverted. Remember last week we read that he dries up the deep and all of this? That's what I'm talking about. You start combining the, you know, the chapter breaks sometimes are unfortunate because you miss the, the total flow and context of what's being shared. But the way that Cyrus did that was he diverted the Euphrates River into a swamp so that his army could actually come in under the walls, under the iron bars, and inexplicably, outside of the intervention of God, the inner gates were left open this night. Probably, I mean, practically, probably, because all the soldiers were drunk. Remember, there was a party going on, and they just weren't paying attention. Uh, and Cyrus took the city, basically, with zero resistance. Now, Cyrus probably thought that he was somewhat lucky, and a bit of a military genius. You know, the strategery that he employed, as ex-President Bush would say. That's some strategery. 
But when he was shown this passage that you and I are examining today, it was clear. God says, Cyrus, you didn't do that. I did that for you. I opened the way for you to go where otherwise you'd have never been able to. I'm the one who gave you wealth. The Babylonian treasure's storehouse was uh, incredible. He said, I'm the one that, that gave you the wealth that otherwise you'd have never been able to apprehend. And I put it in writing some 200 years before it was going to happen. Why? He says, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. What he's saying is this, Cyrus, I've done this for you. Now you're going to do a little something for me. Look at verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I, underline it, form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Hey, man, we were talking about that a little bit just this morning. I think Abby had a word for us. He says, listen, king, contrary to popular opinion, there are not, here's what he's saying, there are not localized deities, okay? These people serve this God. Those people serve that God. There's the God of this nation, the God of that nation, and they contribute the goings-on of the area to the God of that territory, that nation, whatever. God says, no, 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 no. He says, it's not like that. He says, I'm the only true God. And all the goings on, the buck stops with me. He says, I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I, the Lord, he says, I do all these things. Today, the way we say that is like this. God is in control. It's not yin and yang. It's not the force that creating balance, equal, opposite forces of good and evil. God has no opposite. Satan is not the opposite of God. There is only one God and there is no other. Amen. Now, we kind of touched on that last week and a couple of other things we're talking about here. Of course, these chapters flow together. But God, the idea here, he's saying, look, God is just as equally in control when things are going bad as he is when things appear to be going good. In fact, it's when the things are going bad that we need to believe it all the more. God allows, and this is hard for some people to swallow, God allows temporary sufferings, setbacks, unsettling events in the accomplishing of His eternal purposes in our lives. You can call it pruning. You can call it a refiner's fire. 
You can call it being purified, poured from vessel to vessel lest we settle in the dregs. Listen, not everything that stretches you, unsettles me, or shakes us up is from the devil. This is what we talked about though, isn't it? We don't have the privilege of believing what we want to about God. We can't craft our own God. Like Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? What, God's only God when, when you got it going good? You'll honor him then, but not in any other context? Look, we're either going to trust the Lord or we're not, okay? Uh, we're either going to believe that he is good or we don't. We're either going to believe that he has our eternal best interests at heart or we're not. And so again, in the words of Job, though he slay me, yet will I, what's the word? Trust him. And again, guys, it's a hard pill to swallow. I get it. But if God can further his eternal purpose by allowing his own son to die a wicked, unjust death on a cross, then surely he knows, yes, how to use the adversities that he allows into the equation of our lives for our eternal good and his eternal glory. Remember the Lord told Ananias that he was going to show Paul all the things that he would have to suffer for his sake. Guys, it's not ours to reconcile his ways or to rationalize his ways. It is ours to trust in him. Okay. So God girded, and we could talk about what the girding, but ultimately what he's saying is that he equipped him, he prepared him. Okay, God was going to prepare Cyrus. He was going to equip Cyrus, ready him for all these victories, even though Cyrus didn't know him. Quick question. If he could do all this in the life of a man who didn't know him, how much more should God be able to use and move through the lives of those who do know Him and have even a modicum of faith in Him? How easy it would have been for Cyrus to think that God chose him because he was so great, he was so smart, such a strong leader and all of that. Why wouldn't God want to use a man like me and all? In reality, God says, listen, my choosing you had absolutely nothing to do with you. My focus was on my people. God would move heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes for his people. God gave Cyrus the kingdom so that his people would be set free. He says that the whole world would know there in verse 6 that there is none besides me. That I am the Lord, there is no other. And we're going to see in just a couple of minutes that Cyrus acknowledged the Lord when he released the people of God to return to the promised land. 
I mean, it's just kind of like this, this just smacks of undeniable evidence. I mean, he mentioned my name. I didn't even know this guy existed. He called me by name 200 years ago. And so Cyrus responded appropriately. Now look at verse 8. He says, rain down. So he's talking about all the things that he can do and how he can move heaven and earth to fulfill his promises, his purposes for his people. He says, rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Guys, be it down from the heavens or up from the earth, God can send blessing from every or any direction. Okay? And I love the fact that we see salvation and righteousness rising up together, springing up together. Because this is always the way that it is. When God brings salvation into your life, He brings righteousness together. They meet together. They spring up together in the person of Jesus Christ. Righteous, salvation and righteousness come together in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, in verse 9, look at this. Oh, you might just want to go ahead and underline this too. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Guys, this is God's way of saying, look, I can do what I want. And you are in no position to argue with me. The commonly held thought here, and it may be very well that it's correct, is that some of the Jews were upset. Remember what I talked about just a few minutes ago? That this is kind of, there's not much of a precedence for this. Typically when God would want to raise up a deliverer for his people, he would do so from among his people. And I gave you a couple of examples, though we could obviously give many more. But... Many of the Jews upset, like, what's going on here? Why would God use a pagan king rather than raise up one from among his own people to deliver his people? And God says, look, I can do what I want. Woe to him who strives with his maker. He says, you want to strive with the other crackpots, the people, of the earth, the potsherds. What is a potsherd? It's a piece of broken pottery, which is ultimately what we are. He says, you want to you strive with other people, I suppose, you know, knock yourself out. But the clay has no right to strive against the creative means of the master potter. Quick question. You ever feel like you're just kind of spinning in circles? You know, being poked and prodded and pushed around, smushed down on a little bit. Remember what we just developed? God is the one who makes peace and creates calamity. Wait a minute. Where are we going with this? Listen, he's molding you. 
He is transforming you. He is forming and fashioning you from glory, the Bible says, to greater glory as by His Spirit into the image of His own Son. Guys, do yourself a favor. Don't fight with God. Because, listen to me, if you win, you've lost. You demand your way, and God gives it to you, you're in trouble. Better to say, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, right? Not as I will, but may your will be done. Guys, God's goal in each of our lives is the same. And it's to make us like Jesus. Now, the path that he chooses to take, uh, the way that he will make and mold you will look different than the way he chooses to make and mold me. There are different, different routes with regard to how he might shape our lives. But he's the master potter. Uh, you know, and here's the thing. There are some areas, some of us have some rough edges on us. And there are some areas that need rounded off a bit or taken down a bit. And because God loves us, oh, how he loves us, right? We sing it. We, I think we sang it today. Love like a hurricane. I am a tree bending. You know, the idea is man. But because God loves us, He's willing to refine us, to purify us, to work the clay into a vessel of honor. Now, we love how that sounds, don't we? We say, oh, yeah, God. Amen. I, I want to be a vessel of honor for your glory eternally. We love how that sounds as we sit in our climate-controlled creature comfort and we go, amen. We love the principle. I'm going to tell you, we don't like the practical. We love how it sounds. We don't really care for how it feels. Again, ours isn't to, to question God. It's to honor Him, obey Him, submit our lives to Him. He says, does the begotten child have a say in coming to being? Or does the child have the right to say to the woman, by the way, I underlined woman, not birthing person. <laughs> All right, I mean, the Bible's clear. It's a woman. But does the child have the right to say to the woman, what have you brought forth? Now, I think sometimes the woman may wonder, or ask, what have I brought forth? But the point here is that it's both foolish and counterproductive to question God or accuse Him of some unjust action in how He chooses to fashion and form our lives or bring about His plan. And in verse 11, we read, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker... Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. 
I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He, that is Cyrus, shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, guys, we've spent extensive time in recent studies developing the fact that uh, God is our creator. So I'm going to let that principle, that point, slip to the wayside for the time being. For now, I'm going to direct my focus on a couple of other quick points. Number one, God says here, notice in verse 11, he says, you command me. Now, I want to just address that because I don't want there to be any confusion here. God's not saying that he's like a genie and you can just tell him what to do or tell him to do whatever you like and he'll acquiesce to your request or command. Let's not forget, what is the point of prayer? Is it to get your will done in heaven? No, no, no. It's to get God's will done on earth. And so this is similar. I'm going to let you write it down and read it later. This is you know, maybe what your appetite a little bit. You can research it on your own. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. The next thing is here in verse 13, God says that Cyrus will not only release his people, but that he will support the work in the rebuilding of the, the city and, and all, the temple as well. I love that when you know God wants to do a work, he'll put it in the hearts of people to stand behind the work. But He's saying here that he wouldn't do it for a price. Cyrus wasn't going to release him, release the people, and then uh, let them go and rebuild and re-inhabit Jerusalem because there was something in it for him. But he was going to do it because of the conviction upon his heart from the Lord. And so this is where we, we leave the book of Isaiah. Turn to the left in your Bible to the book of Ezra chapter 1. You should know that the books of your Bible aren't always laying out in some kind of chronological order. Sometimes you turn back and you're moving forward in history. Okay, So we're going to Ezra chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read this section together here just real fast. Ezra chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. And it says this, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, pardon me, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, I should say this too. Ezra could have just as easily said the word of the Lord by the mouth of Isaiah. He chose for whatever reason, the Lord inspired him, whatever, to use Jeremiah. But how many of you realize that when God does work, he's going to confirm it by the mouth of two or more witnesses, right? And so God would speak to multiple prophets the similar things to share. This is what's going to happen. So he said much of the same to Jeremiah is my point, okay? So that the mouth, of, that the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven, look at that, has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. And so not only did Cyrus release the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, man, he took up an offering for the work as well, just like God said he would do, that he would have the whole thing funded. Here's where we have the phrase, where God guides, God provides. And he made the decree that the nations would know this was his doing. Cyrus saying, no one's fleeing, no one's escaping. I'm aware, I support, I encourage, I pay for the whole thing. Don't harass the Jews on their return trip home. Guys, this is like unprecedented. This is incredible. Now, back to Isaiah chapter uh, 45. And we'll read here in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt... And the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. And they shall walk behind you, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you, and they will make supplications to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. It's almost like Isaiah is just beating it into our thick skulls. Listen, there's no other God. I mean, he says it again and again. You can be sure. Now look, verse 15 Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. And you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Now, uh, verse 15 is the verse that I referenced in our time of introduction. Isaiah says, you are God who hides yourself. Now, it's not referring to being hidden from the seeking sinner. We need to be clear with that. Uh, the Bible says quite clearly, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But we have to recall the context as we break these sections of Scripture down a little bit. God is spirit. You cannot see Him compared to, you remember the context, is all these little idols that these people are carving for themselves. He says, you know, God will not hide Himself from the one who seeks Him. But He is the invisible God. Remember Romans chapter 1. But his invisible attributes are clearly seen by what's been created. But guys, we want to give God praise, verse 17, that he saves with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. I mean, you've got to love that. Salvation is not a temporary benefit. God gives us life everlasting. Now, verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth, 
and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret, underline it. In a dark place of the earth, I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together you who have escaped from the nations. That they, or pardon me, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image. And pray to a God who cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yet, yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time, the ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Amen. So, verse 19, verifying what I mentioned to you about verse 15. Invisible, yes, but God does not speak in secret. You will not seek Him in vain. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, He who comes to God must believe that He is. I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a how do you say a priority, isn't it? If you're going to come to God, you've got to believe that He is. And... That he is a rewarder, he will be found by those who diligently seek him. If you seek the Lord diligently, God will reward that. He will not hold out on that or disparage that. So, there is wisdom in seeking the Lord. There is foolishness in idolatry. You have to carry around your own God. How do you like that? Verse 20, your God becomes a burden rather than a blessing. And you pray to a God who cannot save rather than worship the just God and Savior who saves us with an everlasting salvation. He is both just and the justifier of all who have placed their faith in Jesus. And in verse 22, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, and he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Well, I'm going to say it again at the expense of redundant repetition. If verses 22 and 23 aren't underlined in your Bible, make it so. For God so loved the world. He says, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's the plan of salvation. Family, God could not have made it any easier. Ladies and gentlemen, it could not be any simpler. All you have to do, well, the word is, is look to Him. And the idea here is look away from whatever has your attention and 
look to him. We call that repentance, a turning away from and a looking unto. Turn to me, God says, and be saved. Guys, we need to notice the focus. You're looking to, you're turning to God. You're not looking to yourself. You're not trusting in yourself. You're not looking to the church. You're not trusting in your pastor. You're not looking to rituals, to rites, to religion, to good works. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And there is assurance there, he says, and be saved. I love that. It's not, you might be, perhaps you could be, maybe if you're lucky or if I feel like it, then maybe. There's none of that. You will be saved. And the good news of the gospel is for all. The invitation goes out, all you ends of the earth, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can only trust God for it. He says, look to me. Turn to, trust in me and be saved. It's a gift. And as such, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can only humbly and with heartfelt gratitude receive it. Now, for those of you interested, we're not far from finished here, guys, but for those of you interested, this is the verse that was uh, being preached when the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, got saved. Uh, He slipped into a little Methodist church of about 13 people. One day, it was a Sunday, January 6th, 1850, he was about 15 years old, and the snow was falling Heavy. It was so bitterly cold that he decided that rather than go to the church he was planning on attending, he would just went down this little back road, slipped into this little Methodist church again. He counts, he cites there was about 13 people there, a little Methodist chapel, and he sits down in the back. There he is, he's back there, or back there, I don't know, maybe back there. But he sits down in the back. And evidently, the pastor even of the church was detained by the weather. He, he, he didn't show up that day. And so about five minutes after the service was supposed to start, a deacon stood up, grabbed a Bible, and turned to this text. And he read Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. Look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Now, he didn't really know what to say. So he just, the whole sermon took about 10 minutes. And he just kept repeating it over and over, like the same words, just look. Unto me, all you are. He just kept thundering it out. He, he took it. He spoke about the cross. He spoke about Jesus uh, dying on the tree and dying for sinners and saying, look to me, look unto me and be saved. And then, um, man, I, maybe we should go back to this. But then Spurgeon says that he pointed to me. He pointed me out and he said, you, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> and... And he said, look, there is no hope for you, young man, or any chance of getting rid of your sin but by looking to Jesus. It's like he saw the countenance of this kid. He could tell this guy, this kid does not know the Lord. He is miserable without the Lord. I'm just going to speak to him. 
Listen, young man, you are miserable in your sin, and there is no hope for you to be rid of your sin apart from looking unto Jesus and being saved. Now, for those of you that are like, well, I don't want to push it down people's throat. You know, listen. And as you know, Spurgeon did look, and God used him in a radical way. But we must look to him, for he is God, and there is no other. God says, I have sworn by myself. Guys, when God confirms an oath, who does he swear by? (laughs) I mean, typically, if if you swear, which the Bible discourages, because you and me, we often aren't able to fulfill our oath. He says, better to not swear than to swear and not do it. But God's word, God's never, his word will never fail. So he's free to do whatever he wants. And so you and me, if we swear, typically you'd swear by something higher than yourself. You know? But there's none higher than God. And so when he swears, he swears by his own holy name and character. He says, I swear by myself. Well, what does he swear? Did you see it there? That the day is coming when every knee universally will bow before God. Every tongue will confess that he is God and that it's only in him that righteousness and strength and salvation are found. And anyone who's taken any other position will be ashamed. And we'll end with this. We're going to close here. If this sounds somewhat vaguely familiar to you, it's because Paul basically quotes this section of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. And he applies it to Jesus, which, by the way, is overwhelming evidence of, of, or biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. But he writes, Paul writes, and being found in appearance as a man, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, God also highly exalted him. Here's the idea, guys. Jesus humbled himself more than any other. I mean more than any other. Therefore, God would exalt him higher than any other. All right? And has given him, therefore God has also a highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mark my words, which are God's words. Every knee will bow before him. I'm telling you, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that righteousness and strength and salvation are in the Lord. Now listen, you can do it now. It'll make for your salvation. Or you can do it when you stand before him. But it will only add to your humiliation and condemnation. Listen, look to the Lord. And be saved. God, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you, God, for the simplicity.
of the gospel. You've done it all. And so may we look to and trust in you and only you. You alone are worthy of all honor, power, glory, and praise. And so God, we humble our hearts before you. And we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Righteousness and strength are in him alone. And we thank you for your love and the precious gift of everlasting salvation. Guys, I'm just going to say while our heads are bowed, if that's not real to you, if you don't know the Lord, you've never truly looked to the Lord that, that you might be saved, well, believe on Jesus Christ today. Look away from religion or routine or trying to be a good person, or the distracting cares of this world, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I'm just telling you, if you've been thinking about it, there's no time like the present. To say, you know what, Lord, it's, it's time. Today is a day of salvation for me. I'm done fighting with you. I'm done kicking against you. I surrender completely to you. So if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart and today is a day for you, I just want to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand if this is for you. And if I see your hand, I'll say so and you can put it back down. But guys, I, don't, I just don't mess around. Why, why mess around? Just give your life to Christ. Anybody today? All right then, Father, we just thank you again for speaking to our hearts the edification, the exhortation of your word, the examination of our hearts. Lord, whether things are happening in a manner of just, wow, look what God's doing, or if maybe there's some calamity or some sort of shaking up or stress that's stretching us or trying us and the heat is on in our lives, God, we, we trust in you. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you want to make us like Jesus. So have your way in our lives, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen.